0: You may be seated, and as you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are up at the front here, and we would love to get a Bible into your hands, so you can just slip your hand up in the air, we'll make sure that they get a Bible across to you. As we mentioned last week, as we kind of kicked off our ministry year theme, we we love the Word of God, we want to hear from God, and we believe with all of our hearts that God has spoken to us in a book. He wrote a book. And his spirit now works to illuminate this truth to our hearts and our minds, and we're, we've asked for God to do that, and we're trusting that as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see God just, uh, do just that. I want to begin by reading our texts. We're going to read the entire chapter, so let's take a look at chapter 22. You can follow along with me. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... He said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah, son, uh, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Chemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Phildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rema, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Makah. Well, who doesn't like taking a test, right? Being tested is, is kind of a rite of passage, especially as a kid growing up in school. And I don't want to hear any of those excuses. Oh, I just don't test well. Or or I, I don't want to hear the oh, you know what? We really don't believe in tests. We don't want to damage our child's self-esteem. Because, apparently, God thinks tests are pretty important. So even if you don't, or you don't like them, the Word of God is coming alongside us to say, well, that's a little bit too bad. There's no opting out of the tests that God gives to us. Not only does God think that tests are important, He's telling us here in this passage that tests are absolutely necessary. We all have to take them. And you see, when God tests us, He's testing some value, some quality, or an attribute by stretching it to its absolute limit. So, what is God testing exactly? Well, the simple answer is that God is testing our faith. That is what the Bible tells us over and over again. He's testing our faith in order to prove our faith and to refine our faith. It's it's been said that Satan tempts us to destroy us, but God tests us to strengthen us. Well, how exactly is our faith proven? How do we, maybe if I can say it another way, how do we pass the tests? Well, the simple answer is this, that faith in God is proven by remaining faithful to God. The theme of our our ministry year is faithful. I said last week we we were going to be looking at two sides of the same coin, that God is a faithful God, but he's calling us as his people to be a faithful people. Last week, we saw so clearly that God is faithful. This week, we're going to see so clearly that what God requires from us is that we be found faithful, that we are people who trust and obey. It's really that simple. The problem is that we don't usually walk around expecting God's tests, do we? They kind of hit us then kind of more like a pop quiz, Instead of like an exam that we knew was coming and that we were actively preparing for, we are kind of hit all of a sudden, maybe in the blink of an eye, with something totally unexpected. It catches us off guard. It throws us for a little bit of a loop. And more than that, we're actually often aware that we're actually in a test when it's happening. An opportunity presents itself maybe as a student to lie, to cheat, to somehow get yourself ahead by taking shortcuts, or maybe as an adult to cheat on your taxes or to defraud somebody who's even unaware of what's taking place, will you be faithful? Or you're, you're in an unhappy marriage, it's just been one of those seasons and then somebody of the opposite sex starts to pay a little bit more attention to you and give you what you think you really need and the door is, is opened to walk down a path that maybe has no return, will you be faithful? Or God puts you in a position to proclaim Christ or to stand firm on the truth of the gospel or or to compromise or to capitulate or to deny Christ? Will you be faithful? The testing of your faith is multifaceted, but it has a singular objective to strengthen your faith so that you can remain faithful to the very end. God wants us, this is the good news church, to pass the tests. And he gives us here an example of faith and an example of faithfulness in the life of Abraham. He is, after all, the father of the faith. Hebrews 11 highlights him more than any other individual in the Old Testament as an example of what it means to have true, saving faith and to be a faithful person and follower of Christ. I want to draw out four essential principles to help you and to help me be faithful and to pass God's tests. First, if we want to be faithful and pass God's tests, we must be confident in the person of God. What we read in Genesis chapter 22 is a little bit uncomfortable. It's a hard pill to swallow in many ways. And so much of what makes this palatable, so much of what makes this understandable is actually understanding the actual character and nature of God himself. The text begins by saying, after these things, God tested Abraham. It's interesting that this kind of phrase, after these things, is speaking to what's just happened in the previous chapter. Remember what happened last week? Ishmael was being told that he was not the the promised son, he was not the heir, and Ishmael and Hagar were to be cast out. And so certainly Moses, the author of this passage, has that event in mind, but he has more than that in mind. He has actually the entire life of Abraham from the very beginning of chapter 12 when God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And so he's actually kind of gathering up the life of Abraham and here's why I'm telling you this because the event in chapter 22 is the high watermark in the book of Genesis and it's actually the the culminating experience and the final test of faith that Abraham is going to experience it is the ultimate test He's had nothing like this up to this point. As hard as it's been, as challenging as it's been to demonstrate faith, as much as he's failed, this test is unlike any other test he's ever gone through, and it will reveal the true nature of his faith and demonstrate a life of faithfulness. Moses wants us to see this as the climactic event of Abraham's life. And it is, though, deeply connected to the previous event. And, and it's, it's not like this is happening the next day. I want you to know that. Uh, Isaac was probably two or three years old in chapter 21. Here, he's, he's more likely a young man, maybe 12 or 13 years old. We have to kind of guess or estimate. The Bible doesn't make it explicitly clear. Here's what we do know. He's old enough to carry wood on a three-day journey up a hill. He's grown. So so Moses has sped up time for us because he wants us to see that, listen, that in the previous chapter, God had called Abraham to cast out the son who is the problem child. But now, almost immediately in our minds, we need to see he's now calling him to give up or offer up the promised child. And it was hard when he had to give up the problem child. Remember that? It was challenging. It was painful. It was difficult. He had to entrust him into the good and faithful hands of God. But now in this chapter, imagine if it was hard with the problem child, how challenging, how painful, how difficult it's going to be with the promised child. This is excruciating. But I I know what you're you're thinking because I've been thinking it too all week. Why is God commanding child sacrifice? It's a sticking point here, isn't it? That's the uncomfortability of this text. I mean, that's something that Molech, the pagan Canaanite god, would recommend or require in order to be made right with him, but not not Yahweh, not the God of Israel. And this command, it produces uh, uncomfortability. And in fact, in the lives of many people, it's produced incredible frustration. Many people throughout the years have appealed to this very chapter and this very story to say, I could never believe in a God who who asks for such a thing. This God sounds like a a moral monster. In fact, the, the famous atheist a Richard Dawkins, he appeals to this story in a book that he wrote to describe his utter detest of the God of the Bible. I'll just kind of read you a quick little snippet. He says this, he says, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. He believes that this story is repugnant and the God of the Bible is repugnant as a result, and many people feel the same way. And the truth is, this question nags at us. It's kind of like a rattle, isn't it, in an engine? You know, we start to wonder why it's there. And it actually has the potential, if we're not careful, to shake our very confidence in the person of God. But I want you to see that in order to preempt this faulty conclusion, Moses himself front loads for us one particular word that begins to shape our entire understanding of this passage, and it is the word we've been talking about from the very beginning of this sermon. He says this, that God tested Abraham. And in fact, what we're supposed to see is that this God, Yahweh God, is actually nothing like the immoral God petty, pagan deities of the nations. He's superior to them in every way. God did not really require child sacrifice as did the pagan gods, but instead God is testing Abraham in a very pointed way. So why is he doing it like this? Here's, Here's why. Listen, this is so important to grasp. Because the most difficult tests Are often the most revealing tests the tests reveal our confidence in God himself really when God really pushes on those pressure points in our lives he's asking us this question do you really love God do you really love me do you really trust me and if we say yes then we will obey this God no matter what he asks. It's kind of like when Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I want you to notice how God highlights the cost to Abraham by the multiple descriptions of his unique and precious relationship with Isaac. Did you catch verse two? There's kind of a stair step to it intentionally, an escalating nature to it. Just catch this. Feel the weight of this. He said, take your son. That could have been enough. Your only son. That could have been enough. Isaac, whom you love. This is intended to create a weight, a heaviness, to help us feel the emotional component to this text. Abraham was a real man with a real son whom he deeply loved. But it's more than that. It's supposed to remind us that this isn't just any child. You see, Isaac, as we know in the the book of Genesis, is the son of promise. He's the long awaited child of Abraham and Sarah. You see, through Isaac, Abraham would become a great nation. Without Isaac, it could not come true. Through Isaac, Abraham would become a blessing to all the families of the earth. Without Isaac, the curse of sin upon the world would remain. And what God asks when he tests us, especially in the most painful areas of our life, what God asks is this simple question, are you willing to put your future in my hands? Are you willing to trust who I am when you cannot see and you do not know? what What are we to learn here from this? Well, aside from the fact that faith is often proven when tests are painful, I really think we need to see the trust component. One commentator, Thomas Mann, he says this. He says, this test is one of obedience and trust. In essence, it is a test of Abraham's relationship with Yahweh. It asks whether Abraham's trust is really in God, and listen, this is good, and not simply in what God has promised. Abraham has built altars before and sacrificed to this God when God renewed the promises. And he asks this. Is he willing now to build an altar and sacrifice the promises themselves embodied in his son in order to demonstrate his unswerving trust in the God who stands behind the promise? So we are left here, in one sense, with the inexplicable and challenging realization, listen, here's the lesson for you and for me, that faith demands radical obedience. True faith always demands radical obedience. In in many ways, this is the point that Jesus so often tried to communicate to those who really struggled with clinging to this world, to the things of this world. I think of the rich young ruler. The question he asks Jesus is the most profound question and the most important question a human being can possibly ask. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How, how could I be saved? How can I be rescued? How can I have an eternity with you, God? And Jesus, he works his way through this kind of little test with this man to try to expose the man's heart. You know, he just keep the law. Well, I've done that since I was a little child, which is not true, but he says it anyways. But Jesus plays the game with them. He walks it out with them. And he's like, okay, so you're a good person, right? That's the, by the way, that's, the, that's what the world typically appeals to, right? That's what we, apart from Christ, would appeal to in terms of our eternal life. I'm a pretty good person. Look at what I've done. And then Jesus gets to the real heart of the issue. Here's the real test. He says, okay, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the man... He turns and he walks away very sad, the Bible tells us, because he had so much wealth. And what Jesus does is he uses his test to press in on that pressure point of the heart, of the idol of the heart, to expose the man's devotion and worship. And Jesus tells this particular man, listen, you can't have me because you want riches and wealth more than me. And what I'm asking of you, you see what Jesus is saying. What I'm asking of you, is radical obedience to me. Radical faith requires radical obedience. I had a conversation with somebody this past week sitting in my office, and somebody, a professing believer um, who's, who's not walking with Christ in any way, shape, or form, and, and I brought up this situation of the rich young ruler and appealed to this person on this, and, 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 and to this person's credit. I said, I, said, I said, are you willing to surrender everything in your life to follow Christ? Like, What is it that you wanna hold on to? And they rattled off a list of things they were unwilling to give up, and in that moment, almost like the light bulb went on, they recognize that they wanted what Jesus could give them more than they wanted Jesus them- Himself. You see, God will press on what you love to help you prove what you love most. He will test your grip on the gift to see if you are truly holding fast to the giver. He's looking to find out, listen Christian, in all of your tests, is your faith motivated by personal gain or by love of and confidence in God himself? If you're going to pass God's tests, you must be confident in the person of God. You must see God as faithful, loving, merciful, good, just, holy, worthy. You say, well, how do I I grow that confidence? Listen, there's one simple way. That kind of confidence in God is only cultivated by time with God. That's it. It's it's really simple. You know, you're just saying the application is read your Bible more. Yeah, it's kind of it. Get in the word of God. Get to know the God of the Bible. Get to know who he is and what he does. Get familiar with it. Believe it. See it over and over and over again. Wash, rinse, repeat, okay? Get your heart so soaked in the God of the Bible that whenever you think about the God of the Bible, all that comes to your mind are the amazing attributes and character of God. He is who he says he is. He is faithful and true. There's no one like him. I believe in him. That is at the core we know who he is and what and we hold fast to who he is next if we want to be faithful and pass God's test we must be committed committed to the path of God and this is where it really gets uncomfortable because we all know it's one thing to say okay God I, I believe in you I have confidence in who you are but really really that's proven isn't it when the rubber meets the road When all of a sudden, God begins to walk us down a path that is actually very uncomfortable. Where it really does challenge our commitment. And here, Abraham literally begins to walk a path, doesn't he? He's called to go to the land of Moriah. To offer a burnt offering on one of the mountains And look at verse three, this is powerful, okay? It's so small, and you may have missed it. I just want you to see this, just look at this. Abraham responds immediately. It it says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his dog. there's a speed here, you just need to see this. It's like like Moses, it's his only way of telling us, don't you see how quickly Abraham was willing to obey? Don't you see the level of commitment that Abraham possessed? He rose early in the morning saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. There's no debate. There's no question. There's no hesitation. This is immediate obedience. And we can speculate endlessly about what went through Abraham's mind that night. Perhaps he was angry, depressed, confused, or some combination of these emotions. Uh, We really don't know. Moses doesn't tell us. What he emphasizes is Abraham's ready obedience as he moves straight from the divine command to Abraham's preparation for the journey. He wastes no time. You'll notice that on the third day, he looks up and he sees the spot from afar, He's going three days journey, and this oftentimes in the word of God signifies a long period of time. Remember, uh, he's walking on this journey, so three days walk is not an easy endeavor, and, and, and here's why I think one of the reasons why Moses puts this in here, this three days length of time, and it's because this, is time often tests our commitment. You know, maybe you've heard the phrase, time and truth go hand in hand. You ever heard that? give it enough time and the truth will come out. I think that's absolutely true about faith. Isn't that true, right? It's, it's one thing. I mean, we've all seen this. People profess faith in Christ for a season. Jesus actually tells parables about this, right? The parable of the sower. And, and there are people who give the appearance for a season of time to love Christ, to believe the gospel, to follow. But over time, what begins to happen? Well, all kinds of things happen. Maybe trials come, Satan comes and tempts them away. The cares of the world, riches of the world, there are things that entice them, they pull them away, and they they prove the true character of their faith over time. God will often, listen, he'll often allow a trial, a test in our life, to be for a length of time, long enough to truly, to truly reveal our faith and our commitment to him. There's a, uh, a principle in you know, bodybuilding the health industry, if you want to grow your muscles, it requires time under tension. The longer you're willing to kind of allow your, your body to be under tension, the more possibility and potential it has for growth. And here's what I would say, this is exactly kind of what God is exposing in Abraham. And part of this is to demonstrate that when Abraham acts, when he responds, what we're supposed to take note of is that this is not just a, a knee-jerk reaction. It's not impulsive behavior. This is intentional. It's careful. It's calculated. It's thought out. So so in other words, when Abraham kind of gets up in the morning and obeys, he's not just kind of getting up and saying, well, let's just get this over with. You know, like you're on Survivor and you have to eat a nasty bug or something. Like, I'll just go as fast as I can and just try try to get over it. But what happens? The longer you sit and think about it, what happens? The harder it gets more excuses maybe you can begin to come up with. You see, this length of time, in one sense, it guarantees for Abraham, and for us, by the way, that his obedience isn't impulsive, it's intentional. It's not rash emotion, but thoughtful commitment. And so for three days, I just want you to think about this. For three days, every step, he's thinking about what God has commanded him to do. Every step he's thinking about the fact that he's going to put his son to death. Every, every moment he's closer and closer to the final destination, the weight of what he's doing, the emotional toll, the psychological toll, the spiritual reality of what's saying. everything just begins to begin to fall on him and weigh on him, heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And heavier. For 3 days he's got to he's got to wrestle with the confusion of what's actually happening. For 3 days he's maybe thinking about all kinds of ways out of what God has called him to do. For 3 days he's he's thinking this is the path that God has me walking on, but what if I chose my own path? What if I just what if I just kind of went around a different way? But he's tried that before, hasn't he? That's, that's actually old Abraham. That's what he always tried to do. I'll do it my way, God, right? You promised me a child. It's not happening in my timeline. Okay, fine. Me and Sarah will come up with this plan. We'll take Hagar and, and, and we'll have a baby with her and that'll be the promised child. We'll do things our way. That didn't work out well. Here's what I also want you to see here. What Abraham is demonstrating in his life at this point is incredible growth. He's not the same man. And the test is harder. It's harder. It's harder. And yet he's responding better. This transforms his response from a sporadic reaction to a decided commitment. He will walk the path that God has called him to walk. There are a few times in in the Gospels where Jesus makes it clear to his disciples what it's going to mean that they follow him. You ever come across those passages? It's like he's not pulling any punches. He's like, look, I know things are going really well right now, but I promise you, listen, one day, one day you're going to stand before courts. One day you're going to be maligned publicly. You're going to be persecuted. The world hates me. They're going to hate you. It's going to cost you dearly if you want to follow me. Are you sure you're in for this? I think of Paul, who was told right after his conversion, I will show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. I think of Jesus' words. When it comes to salvation, he said this so clearly, right? Like... Again, we we want to make salvation so, so easy. Listen, it's simple, but it's not easy, okay? It's a very simple, simple reality. The way God saves people is so, so simple, but it's not easy. In fact, what Jesus said was that you need to count the costs. Nobody goes to war. No king goes to war without first counting the cost to see if he's got the the, the amount of uh, resources to win the battle. Nobody builds a building. Without first making sure he has all the resources to finish the job, and when he when he what he does is he takes those illustrations and he turns them. And he says, "Listen, if you want to you want to follow me, it's following me all the way to the end. so you need to count the cost up front. Are you willing to follow me?" And so, uh, Abraham here, he understands what God requires of him. Those who have decided to follow Jesus should understand what God requires of us, and, and it's a reminder that we must be a people who are committed to walk the path of God. That's the only way to pass God's tests. But, but now comes actually the climax of the test, and this, this I think, is the most staggering part of this, of this account, because they're walking a long way, and then all of a sudden, we hear the voice of Isaac. Again, imagine, he's just, he's just a, a younger boy. Again, maybe, maybe 12, maybe 13. He's certainly not very old. And they're both together. And Isaac says to his father, my father. And he says to him, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And at this point, listen, at this point, if you're a father and you hear the voice of your child, at that point, every one of us, I I, I wonder how many of us would have said, that's it, I can't do it anymore. I I can't go one step further. God, why are you asking this of me? God, this isn't right. God, this isn't fair. God, how dare you put me through this kind of test. God, how dare you put me through this kind of trial. But Abraham is unwavering. This text indicates nothing but resolved commitment on the part of Abraham but what about Isaac there appears to be here absolute trust and confidence in his father this is what makes this so so painful but so precious he knows his father he loves his father and I think listen I think he's committed to the path of God just like his father And I don't think he's naive. Maybe you're like, well, he really doesn't know what's going on. Actually, I think this is exactly where he figures it out. I think verse 7, he realizes exactly what's happening. He's, He's been paying attention. He's looking around at the scenario, and he realizes they got the knife, they got the wood, but they don't have the lamb. And yet he opens not his mouth. I promise you. Abraham, if, if Isaac's 13, I promise Abraham's 113. If he wants to get out of there, he can, and Abraham's not going to catch him. <laughs> but he opens not his mouth. It's like a lamb who's led to the slaughter. I don't know what path God has you on. I don't know what path he's going to have you walk at different points in your life, but I know that that path is going to involve testing of some sort. And I just want to maybe press into some of you who are in the trial, in the testing. Some of you are going to go through it. I just want to ask this question. When it gets hard, how are you going to respond? When it's longer than you'd like, how are you going to choose to respond? When it's more painful than you ever thought it could be, how are you going to choose to respond? Will, will you look to the left or the right and, and look to get off the path God has you on? Or will you keep your eyes fixed upon him and stay the course? Will you remain under the trial? Will you pass the test? Will you stay steadfast in your trust? Will you remain constantly in prayer? Will you be rejoicing always? Will you be faithful, committed to the path of God? The way out of a test is always through the test. Next, we need to be certain about the provision of God. And verse 8 really is the turning point in this narrative, but it's a staggering statement from Abraham. Where's the, where's the lamb for the burnt offering, Isaac asked. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now this phrase can actually be taken in one of two ways. In the original Hebrew, you can legitimately translate this verse like this, don't worry, my son, God will provide the lamb. Or it can legitimately be translated like this, God will provide the lamb, my son. And I think it's that latter interpretation that makes the most sense of this passage. In other words, at this point, he is certain about the provision of God being his son, Isaac. He is absolutely certain about this. He was convinced, by the way, at this moment, he was ab- Abraham was convinced he was about to kill his child. And this is evidenced in this unimaginable scene that just unfolds before our very eyes in the next verses. And, and Moses does something so unique here, something that he hasn't really done uh, at this, up to this point in the, the, especially the, the, the Abraham narrative. He slows everything down. He zooms in, and he wants us again to feel this passage right to the very depth of our bones, And they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood. He built a a pyre. He bound Isaac, his son. Then he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his knife and took the knife to slaughter his son. So how, how is this... How is this possible? Here, here is this man, and he has, he has his hand raised at this moment above his son with every intention upon driving it into the heart of his very own son. How is this possible? How could he do such a thing? How can he have such faith well there 's a little bit of a hint of hope in verse five i don 't know if you you caught it there. We kind of moved past it pretty quickly, but he says to his young men, "Stay here with the donkey." I and the boy will go over there and worship and then notice these words look at this and come again to you. Abraham is convinced he's going to kill his son but at the same time he's convinced he's going to come back with his son. How do you reconcile those two realities? Well, I'll tell you exactly how to reconcile those two realities because we don't have to guess. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, tells us exactly what was going on in the mind of Abraham with that knife raised above his own son. Look at what the passage says. Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 through 19. I think we got it. And any indication of a passage? No? Okay, I'll quote it for you. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, here at his church, listen to this, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He believed with all of his heart, listen, that though he would kill his son, God was so powerful, he was so mighty, he was so good, he was so true, he was so just, that he would simply bring his child right back to life he had resurrection kind of faith This is certainty about the provision of God, okay? That's what you have to see. The provision of the resurrection, nothing, not even death itself can stop God's promises. Abraham knew it, he believed it, and he had seen it already. God had already done a resurrection act in his life, remember? Romans four sixteen and 17 tells us that Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead, but God brought life from their dead bodies. He's kind of sitting there thinking, that's okay. God did it once. He can do it again. One resurrection is great. Why not two more? So here he is, and he's holding the knife above his son, and all of a sudden, God intervenes. How do believers surrender all to follow Christ when they they know that the moment... They profess their faith, their family will disown them and have a funeral for them. How do believers, like those in the book of Hebrews, joyfully endure the plundering of their property for the sake of following Jesus Christ? Joyfully. Not just endure, joyfully endure. How do believers surrender their body to the flames to be burned at the stake? rather than renounce Christ? How did the prophets and the apostles endure torture, being sawn in two, beheaded for the sake of following Christ? How do people endure having their family members murdered before their very eyes because they will not renounce their faith in Jesus Christ? How do we give all of our lives, all of ourselves, for the call of following Christ as our Lord? Here's how. Because we have a supernatural certainty about the supernatural provision of God. Even if God does not rescue us physically, even if God doesn't save our child, spare us torture, give us financial security, even if our very lives are taken, our God is the God who raises the dead. And he has promised that one day all who have placed their faith in him will be raised not just spiritually, but physically back to life. So just as Abraham is certain that God will raise his son back to life, so he raises the knife above his son. And in this moment, verse 11 tells us that Abraham passed the test. Now God knows that Abraham fears him. Believe me, this is not for God's knowledge, okay? God is omniscient. He knows all things. This is not for God's benefit, but for Abraham's and ours. But he has proven his faith by his faithful obedience. And so now God intervenes. And what happens? God provides a substitute for the sacrifice. Verse 13 tells us that, that behold, behind him, and, and some, tra- you know, some translators, they, they say that this, this word behind him can rightly be translated at the exact moment or at the right time. Does that sound familiar? At the right time, God provided a substitute. And check this out in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. You better believe he did. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What an awesome and fitting name. And what an awesome and prophetic statement. The Lord provides a sacrifice so that his people may live. The tester is also the provider The one who calls you to walk the path will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you always. There are some terms here that are really important. I just want to quickly point them out. The terms, a burnt offering, behold or appear, that's how that can be translated, and the word ram, they only occur together in this fashion, these three words, in three other places in the Old Testament. And that's in the book of Leviticus in chapters 8, chapter 9, and chapter 16, all of which have to do with the day of atonement in the life of Israel, where the people of God would offer up a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And there's a sense, I'm telling you that because I think what Moses is doing specifically in Leviticus is he's actually reaching back to this experience here in the life of Abraham and he's, he's institutionalizing their experience. He, he's in, a, in essence, what he's doing by connecting it to the day of atonement and the sacrifice of the ram on the day of atonement, what he's telling them is this, listen, I want you to see your connection to Abraham and you, you, the people of God, are all bound up in Isaac you, like Isaac, need a substitute to pay for your sins. And the fact that this happens on Mount Moriah is a fascinating reality because the word of God tells us in, in First Chronicles that Mount Moriah is the location that the temple would eventually be built. So the place where Abraham is offering up his son Isaac and God provides a substitute is going to be the place where the people of God will come for hundreds of years to offer sacrifices as a perpetual reminder of their need for substitutionary sacrifice. And as we go through the tests that God lays before us, well, what God is calling us to do is, is see that when we are called to give up our Isaacs, those things in our life that are most precious to us, we need to understand who our God is, that our God is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who provides. And we will only pass God's tests when we are certain about his provision. When we do not turn to the right or to the left, but ultimately when we turn to the provision of his very son. Finally and quickly, we need to see that we must be convicted about the promises of God. If you want to pass the tests, this is so crucial. And we're essentially coming full circle back to this idea of, of the promises that God made to Abraham. I want you to know that this is the fir- 35th and the final time that the Lord speaks to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And with this final moment, there is a momentous declaration. This isn't the first time that God has sworn an oath to Abraham, which is what he's going to do now. He's going to swear now by his name, which is what Hebrews eleven or six, excuse me, refers back to. And these aren't really new promises that he gives them. This is really an affirmation of what God has already promised, but there is additions or expansions on these promises. He tells him that he is going to take his offspring and multiply his offspring so that they're like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashores. And then he turns from this idea of of offspring being plural, multiplied, and, and in the Hebrew, you can't see it, but then he moves to the singular form of offspring. And he says that this offspring will conquer, he will possess the gates of his enemies. There is a single seed, there is a final offspring, there is one who is going to put an end to the curse of sin. He brings us all the way back to Genesis 3.15 right here in this promise. There's going to, be co- to come a conqueror, there's going to come a victor, there's going to be one who deals with sin and death finally and fully, and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. Isaac is the seed, and the blessing comes to Isaac because Abraham obeyed. In other words, it was his conviction about the promises, the willingness to choose the giver over the gift, the provider over the provision, the blesser over the blessing, that not only enables him to pass the test, but actually, in kind of a a, a paradoxical twist, actually guarantees the fulfillment of those very promises. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. This principle is at the very heart of the gospel itself. God promises you life. Listen, listen. God promises in the gospel to give you life. God promises full forgiveness. God promises you a future with him in his presence forever. But in order to grab a hold of those promises, he commands that you first come and die so that you may truly live. You have to have such strong conviction about the promise in order to fulfill the command. You have to believe that God is who he says he is, that he'll do what he says he'll do in order for you to do the hardest thing he's called you to do, which is to lay down your own life so that he may raise it back up again. And he ends with this genealogy. A genealogy of Abraham's brother, actually. And it, it symbolizes multiplication, uh, the birth of another nation. It's almost like he's saying, look it, I, I, I am the God who makes nations, and I promise to make you a nation. I promise to multiply you, and I know you're not seeing the fullness of this yet, but it's almost a prefiguring, a picture of what God will ultimately do. He's saying to Abraham what he says to us, you must continue to walk by faith and not by sight. But there is a hint here of future faithfulness from God. I want you to see this really quickly. There are 12 sons mentioned in his brother's genealogy. Interesting, 12 sons. But there is one granddaughter mentioned. Did you catch her name? Rebecca. Isaac will soon meet this Rebecca. The two will marry. They will have offspring as God promised. And it will ultimately lead to the final fulfillment of the promise that God made, the offspring, the seed, the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. What tests are you facing today? In what ways are you tempted to disbelieve God's promises, to forget or reject his provision, to forego his path, to question his person, God is calling you and he's calling me to stay faithful. Or maybe for some of you here today, listen, as we transition into communion, listen, for some of you today, God is saying, I have been faithful and I'm calling you now to come put your faith in me and then live a life of being faithful to your faithful God. God invites you today to have faith like Abraham. And if you've been stumbling and struggling if you've walked off the path, if it's been a struggle, that's, listen, that's okay because this passage reminds us that God is a gracious God. God has made every provision necessary not just to save you, but to sustain you. God provides full and free forgiveness and so if you're here today and you're like, man, my life has just been kind of going off the rails. I've been really struggling to be faithful to God. Here's, here's the call for you today. Come back to me, God says. Come back. And as we look at this chapter and we we think about the Lord's Supper, in fact, we can kind of make that transition, we can take the lights down, and I just, I just, I want you to hear some things as we do this, because it's really hard, isn't it, to read this passage without seeing the countless allusions to Christ, isn't it? I mean, just, just let this just sit in your heart for a moment as you, you think about the cross, and you think about your Savior, Jesus Christ, three days. Carrying the wood up the mountain on his back. Being laid upon the wood as a sacrifice. The total and absolute commitment and willingness to do the will of his father. The silence in the face of impending death. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. The son, the only son, the son whom he loved. You cannot help but see how this entire story points us to the fulfillment of the promise of God. The beloved son of God who was offered up on a cross of wood on the hill of Calvary. But in that moment, the father raised the knife and instead of stopping the sacrifice, he let the knife fall. Because God so loved the world, he killed his one and only begotten son as a substitute for us. That was not the end of the story. Three days later, he was raised from the grave. The promised seed possessed and conquered the gates of the enemy. And all who repent of their sin and place their faith in him will be raised to life, spiritual life now, and physically on the last day. Paul, alluding to this passage, says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?